So let's look at uh, Hebrews chapter 8, <clears throat> verses 1 through 6. We'll read God's word and then we'll pray and then we'll get into the message for this morning. So let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See, that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is uh, as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let us pray. Father God, we are grateful uh, that you have preserved us over these last several weeks in spite of difficulties and obstacles. We continue to pray for those, O oh Lord, who uh, have such uh, challenges, especially with the virus. But we ask, O oh Lord, that as we are now here gathered in your presence as the people of God, as the dwelling place of your Holy Spirit, that as we have sung, you would indeed speak to us that you would remove the distractions uh, from our minds, that you would uh, enlarge in the eyes of our faith, O Lord, that you would uh, take away our fears, uh, that you would uh, fill our hearts with hope, and that you would enable us by the eyes of faith to see clearly the Lord Jesus Christ and all of the blessings that we receive in him through his high priestly ministry to us. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. It is difficult, I think, often for us to be able to appreciate certain things if we know nothing different. One of the things that I think it's very difficult, for example, for my children to appreciate is air conditioning. That may seem odd, but uh, when I was growing up and uh, I got my first car, my parents bought it, and that was back in the time when air conditioning was an option. You didn't necessarily buy a car with air conditioning. And at the time, my parents uh, and uh, I and my, my brother, we lived in California, so they, it was in Northern California, so they didn't see a need to, to make the extra expenditure and uh, see the air conditioning installed in the car. But when I inherited it later, after we lived in Georgia, driving in the summer heat in a car with no air conditioning was no fun. You know, you do the 440, four windows, 40 miles an hour, and hope that the convection blast helps cool you off, if only but a little. Well, that's something that my kids have no appreciation for. They don't understand what it's like to be in a car in the middle of the summer with no air conditioning. They've known nothing different. All they know is air conditioning. They go from the air-conditioned house to the air-conditioned car and then back again. Well, I think we could say that something of this principle applies to us as Christians because we don't know what it's like. We don't know what it's like to live under the yoke of the law 
and the sacrifices because as Gentiles, and not only as Gentiles, but as Gentiles who have lived well after the ministry of Christ, his earthly ministry, his work uh, in his uh, earthly life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection and ascension, we only know of life in the new covenant. What was it like under the old covenant? What was it like under the ministration of the Levites? What was it like uh, looking to the sacrifices, knowing that Christ had not yet come? So in order to be able to appreciate a bit more what the author of Hebrews has to say here in the eighth chapter, we want to do the best that we can to take a step back into the Old Testament so that we can have a slightly better appreciation of what it was like to live uh, apart from, or at least before, we should say, Christ's first advent. Once we descend into the shadowlands of the Old Testament, I think we can have a clearer line of sight to behold the glory of Christ. We'll have a better appreciation for the glory in which we live and the fact that we have better promises upon which our hopes lie. We have blessings in Christ that are ours, as well as we can lay hold of the only hope that we have in the face of our sin. And so what I want us to do this morning is we want to first take a step back to go back to the Day of Atonement, to Leviticus chapter 16, to explore that particular passage of Scripture so that we can have a better understanding of what it was like before Christ came. Then secondly, we want to give significance to the actions that, uh, that the author of Hebrews describes as Christ himself, our great high priest, enters the heavenly holy of holies. And in particular, I want us to give note to something that may seem completely innocuous, or at least perhaps to our Christian ears, something that is totally normal. And I want you to give ear, I want you to try to listen to what the author of Hebrews is saying by one simple phrase when he says that Christ uh, sat down. Now, that may not seem like much, but it's, it's amazingly significant. So the Day of Atonement, the seated priest, and then third and finally, we want to put all of these pieces together so that we can give careful meditation and thought to the heavenly ministry that Christ has as our great high priest. So let's first give thought to the Day of Atonement. And that sometimes I think it's best to return to the fundamentals, so that we can have a better understanding of some of the more advanced points. It's like this past week, my, um, my son's football team played another football team that seemed to have uh, significant struggles in just the fundamentals of the game. You know, they, they would go to hand the ball off and uh, the, the running back would drop the ball and he dropped the ball several times. And I told my wife, if I were the coach of that team, I would have the quarterback hand off the ball to the halfback uh, 50 to 100 times, just repeating the fundamentals. Let's get this down. Let's just repeat this action over and over again so that you can become solid in this area. Well, that's what I want us to do. I want us to go back to the fundamentals here. And in this case, what was likely secondhand information or just, just regular uh, experience for them stands at a considerable distance for our own Christian experience. 
particularly when it concerns the sacrifices that were conducted in the temple. Uh, one of my, uh, two of my colleagues at my former institution, uh, they did this early on, and they hadn't done this recently, but for the Hebrew class and for the Old Testament class that they taught, they would invite both the Hebrew class and the Old Testament class to come to the church parking lot, one of the local area churches, and there uh, they would take a live goat and they would kill it and they would dress it and then they would cook it, not as a sacrifice, okay, because of course they did not want to in any way undermine the all-sufficient nature of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice, but they wanted their class to see what, what it was like in order to, to, to get to what a sacrifice had to, you know, what you had to do in order to conduct a sacrifice. You know, most of us have never killed an animal of any sort. Maybe some of you have if you've lived on a farm. Uh, you know, so they would go and, and show the students what was necessary in order to conduct a sacrifice. And then, of course, they would cook the goat and eat it. <laughs> you know, that's what the priest did. Okay, and so that they would have a cookout, uh, but they would walk through this process. Don't ask me where they got the goat. I guess there was a goat store. Uh, you know, I don't even know where I would go to buy a goat these days. But what they were trying to do is they were trying to familiarize the students what life was like in the Old Testament. In this case, it's good to remind ourselves of the processes of the Day of Atonement. And that on this Day of Atonement, which we see recounted to us in Leviticus chapter 16, is that God warned Moses and Aaron that they were not allowed to enter the Holy of Holies. Violating this command could have serious consequences. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 2, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. There were barriers. There were barriers of procedures and processes, but that these processes and procedures were all about ensuring the safety of the people, but most importantly, about the sanctity of God's throne room. Because God could not bear to have sin enter into his presence. And so to that end, Aaron had to offer a sacrificial bull and a ram in his own place in order to address his own sinfulness. So first he had to take care of his own sin. He also had to don priestly garments, which were symbolic of holiness, purity, and righteousness. You know, one of the things that drives me nuts, it's like I've told you months ago that one of the colors I feel like I need to give up on is khaki because it just attracts stains. Well, white is the other color that I feel like giving up on because anytime I put on a white shirt, it seems invariably that I get something on me. I always have something on me. Well, this could not at all be the case with the high priestly garments. They had to be absolutely spotless because they were symbolic. They were supposed to be symbolic of the priest's utter ethical holiness and purity, righteousness and sanctity, that only someone who was perfectly holy could enter into the presence of God. 
He was supposed to bathe, therefore, and ensure that he brought absolutely no defilement into the Holy of Holies. And then, after the sacrifice, after the bathing, after the donning of the absolutely pure and uh, clean garments, he was supposed to offer two male goats and a ram for a burnt offering. The first offering took care of the guilt of his sin, and the second set of offerings uh, were to take care of his ritual impurities. Think of it in terms of his justification, his, the propitiation of sin, and then the second set of sac- sacrifices addressing his need for sanctification or holiness. And that in that state, what the high priest was, is he was an echo of Adam in his initial purity in the Garden of Eden as he ministered in God's presence, that he was perfectly whole, he was perfectly righteous. But he wasn't just simply hearkening back to the pure Adam in his initially created state, he was also looking forward, beckoning us to look to the horizon of redemptive history to a greater high priest who had yet to come who would one day take up this work. And so when Aaron was prepared and when he was sanctified and set apart, he was supposed to conduct sacrifices. He was supposed to cast lots between two goats. One was a scapegoat that would take away Israel's sin. The other one was a sacrificial goat. And this sacrificial goat would, of course, be uh, slaughtered upon the altar. And then he was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies with a censure of coals of fire and incense. And the idea here is that initially the priests could enter into the outer temple or the outer uh, tent, but they were not allowed past the curtain that separated the outer tent from the Holy of Holies lest the holiness of God break forth and kill them for their sin. But yet, if they had conducted the sacrifices, the high priest had bathed, he had donned the pure vestments, he had conducted the second set of sacrifices, and then he held the censer, and as the smoke uh, from the incense went up, then he could go into the Holy of Holies in order to sprinkle the throne of God, the, the Ark of the Covenant, with the necessary sacrificial blood. But the way that censer operated in generating uh, the cloud of smoke from the incense is to create, if you will, a mobile veil. If the, if the, if the veil separated the Holy of Holies from the outer temple or the outer tabernacle, then the censer with the smoke would create a mobile veil a portable veil that the high priest could hide behind so that once again he could not just simply look with his bare eyes upon the throne of God. He would enter in behind this mobile veil, behind this smoke screen, and then he would conduct the sacrifices masked by the smoke. He would sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat He was supposed to repeat this process with a sacrificial goat. And then once this was done, he was supposed to sprinkle blood on the altar outside of the tabernacle, confess the sins of the people on the scapegoat and send it into the wilderness. And then finally, Aaron or the high priest would return to the tabernacle 
remove his priestly garments and leave them behind. And he would bathe. Which I think was a reminder of several things. First, I think it was a reminder that the priest's holiness, that which enabled him to enter into the Holy of Holies, was temporary. It was provisional. Secondarily, I think it reminded him that the holiness was not his. It was something that was essentially given to him by the instruction and revelation of God. Third, I think it reminded the high priest that the only way that he could enter into the Holy of Holies was by way of sacrifice and shed blood. These three things, I think, were symbolically represented there as he would remove the high priestly garments and he would leave them in the tabernacle. I think... What these surrendered garments also do is they make the powerful point that there had to be something greater. There had to be someone else who wouldn't have to leave behind the garments. Otherwise, what end would there be year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice, shed garments after shed garments as a perpetual reminder that the sins of the people were always there as a burden. It was, they were always there uh, as something to separate them from God. They were always there as something that needed to be dealt with. So that reminds us of what happened in the Old Testament, what it was like to live under the Old Covenant. So, what's the significance then of Jesus, the seated priest? Which brings us to our second point. The first thing that should leap off the page are the seemingly innocuous words that we see in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point and what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, he makes an initial point here that he has described everything that has gone before about the great high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He says, we find all of these things, all of these characteristics in Jesus. Now, the point that we are saying is this, we have such a high priest. But notice what would have been stunning jaw-dropping to an Old Testament Israelite in the latter half of verse 1, that Jesus is the high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Remember everything that we've just heard of in Leviticus chapter 16 about the protocols of the Day of Atonement, and it says nothing about the high priest going in and sitting down. The high priest would go in, he would sprinkle the blood between uh, carrying a a portable smoke screen so that he would never lay his eyes upon the throne of God. And yet, Jesus, our great high priest, not only does he enter in apart from a smoke screen, but he sits down. He sits down 
Unlike Aaron, the high priest who was supposed to do his sprinkling of the blood and then leave. Not to mention the fact that I suspect for the high priest, especially one like Aaron who had just back in chapter 10 watched two of his sons be struck dead for trying to approach the Lord in a manner that he did not command, it must have been absolutely terrifying to enter into the Holy of Holies. I suspect that his hands must have shaken something awful. Makes me think that he didn't have to do much sprinkling because his nerves were probably enough to keep the blood going and sprinkling all over the throne. And yet Jesus enters into the Holy of Holies and he sits down. Moreover, notice where he sits. He sits at the right hand of God. The location of Christ's seat is significant, and it tells us two things. First, it tells us that Jesus is equal to his Father. To sit at the right hand is a sign of equality. Second, it tells us that Jesus' royal session at the Father's right hand confirms a number of Old Testament prophecies. And in particular, Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus enters the Holy of Holies, and not only does he not die, but he sits down and he ministers as high priest. Moreover, he does not wear... Aaron's high priestly garments. But rather, he wears garments of his own righteousness. What is it that John calls Jesus? We read in 1 John 2, 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus, the righteous one. Jesus does not have to require sacrifices for himself in order to cleanse himself. He does not have to exit the Holy of Holies. He does not have to leave his garments behind as a permanent reminder of his unworthiness, but rather as the the heavenly host sings as he is there at the right hand of God, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This is Jesus Christ, our great high priest. In the light of this truth, do we, we, in the words of the hymn, rest our hope on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness? We dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. This is one of the reasons why we need to reflect upon the Day of Atonement and note carefully everything that was required of the high priest, everything that was required of the Levites. I don't mean any disrespect in any way, but if I can just illustrate the point by saying we need to think what it's like to live apart from air conditioning for a little while, if you catch the analogy. You know, to step outside on one of the hottest days and to sit out there in the hot sun for a few minutes to to, to count the blessings of air conditioning More importantly, 
to sit and to meditate upon Leviticus 16 and how many requirements there were for uh, ritual purity and holiness in order to enter into the presence of God. And now that we can bask in the glory of Christ's high priestly ministry and that we can enter into the heavenly holy of holies through Christ any time we want. Any time we want. This is why we need to reflect upon and meditate upon the Day of Atonement. I think so often it's the case that we try to don the coat of our own worthiness and think that we can please God on our own. And we forget that our righteousness and holiness does not belong to us, that it's Christ by God's grace that grants it to us by faith. Moreover, by our union with Christ, we need not ever lay down Christ's coat of righteousness. We don't have to come into the door of the church, don it, and then upon our departure, take it off and lay it back down again as the high priest did on the Day of Atonement. No, it is ours permanently, irrevocably, immutably, irreversibly. And in light of the whole reason as to why the author of the book of Hebrews wrote his his sermon, if you will, to his, his fellow countrymen who were thinking about abandoning Christ in the gospel, turning away and going back to the old ways. Why would we seek any other remedy for sin? Why would we look to any other hope? Why would we look to any other savior except for Jesus Christ? Which brings us to the third and final point, which is to give some reflection to the nature of Christ's high, uh, heavenly ministry. Is that Christ's seated station within the Holy of Holies isn't the only stunning thing about uh, his priestly ministry. We read in verse 2, he's a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. That what the author here is saying is that Jesus is not ministering in the earthly desert tabernacle, nor is he ministering in the Solomonic temple, or is he minist- neither is he ministering there in the Herodian temple. What does he say in verse 5? That those are but copies and shadows of heavenly things, so that Jesus ministers in the heavenly holy of holies. You know, when you, when you look at a picture, when you look at a picture, it's not the real thing. It's a copy in some sense as to what the real thing is. You know, I, one of the things that from time to time that my kids and I like to do is to look at car pictures. Because my kids, my boys especially, like looking at cars. My daughter likes cars, but she is convinced she wants a 4x4 truck. She wants a 4x4. I'm like, you mean a 4x4? No, Dad, a 4x4. She also likes deer. So I'm, you know, deer in the idea of eating deer. So I'm wondering what kind of a young woman she's going to become. Maybe she'll hunt deer and drive a 4x4, which would be fine with me. But my sons, on the other hand, they like looking at sports cars. And they're like, look at this car, Dad, and look at this car. And I think, yeah, these are fun. But how much better would it be if we actually got to drive one of them? 
to get into the car. You know, it's like my son went, uh, you know, my, my, my father-in-law offered, he says, hey, do you want to go to car dealerships and, and test drive some sports cars? And my son was like, yeah, let's go. And I wanted to say, oh, you can take me too. <laughs> I'll go. Those are just copies. They're shadows. That's the nature of the Old Testament temple, the Old Testament desert tabernacle, even the Herodian temple in all of its glory. It's a copy. It's a shadow. It's not the real thing. The Levitical priests serve the copy, whereas Jesus serves in the heavenly temple and ministers at this very moment on our behalf in the heavenly holy of holies in the very immediate presence of God. He beholds the presence of God and he does not die, unlike Aaron who had to hide behind a smoke screen. He does not need the smoke to hide his sight of God because he is perfectly holy and righteous. That Christ ministers in the heavenly holy of holies is, means that it's not merely a copy, which means that his priestly ministry is far greater than the Levitical priests in the Old Testament. Why, therefore, would the author's Jewish Christian peers want to return to the Levitical priesthood? Verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. It may be difficult for us to realize this, but we enjoy better promises in Christ than the Old Testament saints did. You know, think of how Jesus describes Abraham, that he looked and saw my day from afar. He rejoiced, but nevertheless, he saw it from afar. We do not see it from afar, but we see it up close. Now, again, this is in no way to denigrate God's Old Testament revelation or all of the promises that he gave, the Mosaic Covenant or the Levitical priesthood, but rather to remind his readers that Jesus is superior to Moses. Jesus is superior to the Levites. Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. God swore an oath. He made a covenant with Jesus that he would be a priest forever according to the, to, to the order of Melchizedek. And thus Jesus offered himself in sacrifice to cleanse us from our sins. Not a, the mere blood of a goat or of a bull, but of the very Son of God is what makes us holy and is what makes us pure. Jesus takes his own blood and he has sprinkled the heavenly throne of grace to cleanse us from our sins. And now it is he who is seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning in the midst of his enemies on our behalf. But what is astounding, all the more astounding, is that we may not realize it, but that yes, even now at this very moment, we are seated with Jesus. You see, the Old Testament high priest used to enter into the heavenly holy of holies, donning the, 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 the priestly garments. And inside, on his vest, he had a breastplate that had 12 stones. 12 stones, precious stones. And each one of these stones were representative for the 12 tribes of Israel. So that as the high priest went into the presence of God, he was not just taking himself, but he was representing 
all of the people of God, which meant that in some sense, all of the people of God were entering into the Holy of Holies as the high priest went in. Beloved, the blessing that we have and know that far exceeds the work of the Levitical high priest is that Jesus Christ enters the heavenly holy of holies. He is now there seated at the right hand of God with your name written upon his heart. He carries your name into into the presence of God. And because you have a God-given faith given to you by the Holy Spirit who indwells you now, the same Holy Spirit that anointed Christ, we are bound together with Christ so that even now at this great distance, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly holy of holies. Paul says as much in the second chapter of Ephesians, verses 5 and 6, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. No Old Testament saint knew of this blessing. But we do. We do. How could we possibly think of turning away from such blessings? How could the author's peers think that it was better to go back to the Levitical ways? How can we possibly contemplate of thinking that there is a better way, God forbid, even walking away from Christ? In the words of the familiar hymn, in every, in every rough and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Not earth nor hell, my soul can move. I rest upon unchanging love. I trust his righteous character, his counsel, promise, and his power. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Beloved, in these trying days in which we live, whether it's viruses or hurricanes, political unrest, the faithlessness of governments, personal challenges, besetting sin, Place your hope in the only hope that we have, which is in the high priestly work of Jesus Christ. For we have no other person, no other, no other mediator, no other savior. And it is his high priestly work alone that should give us hope in the face of the uncertainties that uh, we encounter on a daily basis. It is... His rock-solid and uh, unshakable reign at this very moment as he sits at the right hand of God that can impart to us hope, that it can, it can impart to us uh, you know, confidence that we may not understand everything as to why God ordains it the way that he does. But we can rest assured that Christ, our anchor, lies firmly behind the veil in the heavenly holy of holies, and that he holds us there secure. And that not only does he hold us there secure, 
but that we are there with him through the union that we have by faith in Christ, through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, so that we are seated there with him. So in those times of doubt, in those times of temptation, in those times of fear, enter into the heavenly holy of holies. Pray. Enter the presence of God himself. And seek his comfort, seek his shelter, seek the forgiveness of his sins, seek his power. And in so doing, may we always cling fast to Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who does not stand in the Holy of Holies, but who sits at the right hand of the Father. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful that indeed you have given us a a great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ who does not have to hide behind a veil of smoke in order to enter into your presence, who did not have to bathe and purify himself from sin, who did not have to don clothes made by human hands, clothes that were but a mere shadow and copy of the true heavenly temple. We give thanks and rejoice, O Lord, that we worship Jesus Christ, the righteous one, He who is holy, he who is pure, he upon whom death has no hold and therefore had to surrender him as he has been raised from the dead and he has been appointed and declared to be your son by the power of the Holy Spirit through his resurrection. We rejoice in his high priestly ministry and we rejoice, O Lord, in the great privilege that we have at being able to sit at your right hand through his high priestly work. Oh, Father, we pray that you would cause us to seek shelter in his work and in his work alone. So often, oh, Lord, besetting sins get the better of us. We we, we allow ourselves to be dogged by temptation. Our hearts and our minds dally in sin. Oh, Father, help us in our weakness. Help us in our unbelief. We pray that you would buttress our souls from all of the things that, uh, that buffet us so. O oh Lord, whether it be unrest, whether it be this virus, whether it be, O oh Lord, circumstances in our life that do not go as we had hoped or planned. O oh Father, have mercy upon us and strengthen us in Christ, that on Christ the solid rock we stand, for all other ground is sinking sand. We pray, O Lord, that you would etch these truths upon the walls of our hearts, that we would forget them not, and that you would hold us fast in his grip, never to let us go. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.